0: Surprise, surprise, we're back in this letter. Last week, we began studying the prayer that Paul prays for the believers in Ephesus. In chapter 1, you know where we've been, uh, after he explained to them that, that they have every spiritual blessing in Christ... He wanted them to know that he was literally praying these truths into their hearts. So he unpacks what we have in Christ, and then he pauses before he launches into chapter 2 to express how he's praying for these Ephesians and um, how we should be praying for one another. And like we saw last week, Paul's only asking for one main request. All right, one main request. We're going to jump right in here. The request was, he's asking that God may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. So the request is for more illumination. Remember we talked about in our conversion, it's like the power is back on in our house uh, after it was off. And then the spirit progressively goes around room to room, flicking on the light switches, turning the lights on in our hearts progressively to understand and comprehend more truth to see how it's applied in our, in our lives on a day-to-day basis. So Paul is praying that the Spirit would do that. He's asking God um, to continue to grant this ministry of His Spirit. And again, it's, it's wisdom and revelation. And he articulates that in another way here. He says, which is the enlightenment of the eyes of your hearts. So he's wanting us to see with our, our, our insides, with our hearts, not with what our physical eyes see, but what our hearts see by faith, As the truth is is taught to us in this letter to Ephesians and and really any time the word is taught. So that's what Paul's asking for. And he knows that if if God grants this request, if he gives it, he knows it's going to result in at least three things. We covered these last week. It's going to result in um, a greater hope of his calling, greater hope in God's calling, It's going to result in greater appreciation for the wealth of the inheritance that's coming to us. And it's going to result in greater awareness of the surpassing power of God that's working toward us. That's what Paul says here in these these verses, in verses 15 to 19. So it's one request for more illumination. And when this happens, it's going to result in, in growth in three areas. And we I kind of get left you on a cliffhanger last week. We didn't really explore number three at all. We just kind of talked about it briefly, and then uh, we ended. So what I want to do this week is, uh, is complete our lesson on transforming prayer. We're calling it Transforming Prayer Part 2. There it is. Yeah, there's no subtitle. Sorry. Transforming Prayer Part 2. And uh, man, that was really not a good use of my PowerPoint there. Um, and really, all three of these requests that we just looked at, of all of them, he spends the most time on the third one, on this power request. He wants us to understand God's power, and in particular, the power that's, that's leveraged toward us in Christ. And Paul knows that, that we've got to grasp the power of God toward us if we're going to be transformed and useful to him in this world. We have a little view of God's power. We're not going to have a lot of transformation in in this life. We need this desperately. We're often scared. We're afraid. We're anxious. We're troubled. We're definitely weak. Our enemies are great. And Paul knows we're going to cower in fear if we don't have a vision of the exalted sovereign king who's been given for our benefit. Paul knows that. So he takes the time, these remaining verses of this prayer, to highlight the mighty power of God at work for us. That's really what he's doing. And in, and in particular, Paul wants us to see two aspects of God's power. So he's going to unfold it. The best way I could frame it up as two aspects of God's power. And if we, we want to just flesh it out a little further, he's, he's going to show us how great this power actually is how great it actually is and that we really are the beneficiaries of this power that's his, that's his goal it really is as great as he just said it was so he says i want you to understand the surpassing power of his of his the surpassing greatness of his power toward you and as though he almost anticipates the reflex of our heart the surpassing greatness of his power i'm not feeling much power paul's going to help us deter help us see that how great the power actually is, and that's the first aspect, and the second aspect is that we really are the recipients, the beneficiaries of this power. So he's going to unpack that for us. So we're just jumping right in because we've got a lot to talk about today, and I'm excited. Um, there's some Old Testament background we're going to need to get into, but just hang with me because I think uh, you'll see how useful this is in the Christian life. All right, so the first aspect of, of this power that Paul's showing us is the greatness of God's power. The greatness of God's power. We're going we're to pick it up. I'm going to read, but it starts in verse 20. I'm going to read all the way back up in verse 15 so that we can just refresh ourselves in this passage. Chapter 1, verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and of your love toward all the saints... Now, verse 20, Paul's about to launch like a rocket ship, okay? According to the working of his great might, now he's going to describe that great might. Verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, Not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And as a result, he put all things under his feet. We'll stop there. So, this first aspect I want to draw your attention to what Paul's doing is he's describing God's power and he wants us to see the greatness of it. And throughout this passage, these verses, verses 20 through 22, the greatness of God's power is displayed in several ways, so it's kind of like unfolding for us. The power at work in us is the same power, Paul says, that raised Jesus from the dead. That's the, one of the, the initial description of this power. So I'm calling it a, a resurrecting power. It's a resurrecting power. Look in verse 20 the working of his might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. So it's a power that is a resurrecting power. Power that gives life to to dead things. Now, because we're so familiar with this, I just want to back up a minute. The resurrection is the greatest display of God's power the world has ever seen. It's the greatest display of God's power, of power, that the world's ever seen. No one's ever been able to to generate that themselves. No one's ever been able to bring themselves back from the dead. We've seen that miracle happen a couple times in Scripture, but Christ is the only person who's ever been reanimated in glory. Okay, He was brought back from the dead and glorified in His glorious body, and that's the body He still has today, in heaven, and he's never again to return to the grave. That's unique, and that's that's the idea of glory. So Christ is the only person who's ever received this kind of resurrection, and this is the greatest display of power that the world's ever seen. I mean, it literally turned the world upside down. Uh, this message of the resurrection. It turned cowards into to men who were bold for the sake of Christ. So, Paul here shows us that the resurrection signals that the new creation has dawned. Okay? He is first from the grave. The Bible calls him the first fruits. The new creation's dawned. And it assures us that we too will be raised from the grave. Christ is over, and think about this, over our greatest enemy. Death. Paul wants us to realize that this same resurrecting power is at work in our lives. That's why he begins with Jesus, and it really centers on Christ, but the same power is at work in us. And in fact, we've already experienced it to some degree. It took resurrection power to make you alive in Christ. It took resurrection power to to cause you to believe in Jesus at your conversion. We'll see that next week. And we continue to experience this resurrection power as we grow. It takes resurrection power in you to progressively conform you to Christ, to grow. It's the resurrecting power at work inside you from God. And we're going to experience this in the future, in its fullest sense one day. It will take resurrection power to bring our bodies out of the grave in glory. And so really, all I want to do is just draw your attention here. Paul doesn't even elaborate. He just gives one clause here. He says that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. And then he moves on. But that's, that's the, the first of a several dominoes that are going to fall in this passage. The resurrection of Jesus is only the initial display of the greatness of God's power in this passage. That's because the resurrection leads to something else. It leads to the ascension where Christ sat down... To reign from his throne. So this this power we could call it an enthroning power, an enthroning power. And Paul gets really excited about this one. Um, he talks a lot about the implications of this in this in these verses. So he says he raised him from the dead. And in verse verse twenty here, he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So this is an enthroning power. Now, why do I say that? When Paul talks about Jesus sitting down, he's not like talking about pulling out a chair at at a dinner and then just sitting down to eat. What he's talking about is enthronement. Enthronement in particular in heaven after his ascension. So we learned about this in Acts. When Christ ascended into heaven, the significance of that was not like going into orbit. He was going into the heavenly dimension to take his throne over all, all the earth to receive his glory at the right hand of the Father. And he rules... This text says, Paul says here, he rules at the absolute highest place of power. That's at God's right hand. That's what that means. It's the absolute highest place of power at God's right hand. Now, you'll notice in your outline here that I've jotted down Psalm 110.1. And that's because Paul's using the language of that psalm, particularly that verse. I'll throw it up here on the screen for you. Psalm one ten one. This is one of the f- most favorite passages for the apostles to refer to. They quote it over and over again. And they draw different implications from it. But it's a favorite. It's a top hit you know, of the New Testament because of its significance. So you can see here, it says, the, the, in this first verse, it says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So this sit at my right hand, is the language that we find here in our passage. In this psalm, if we were to go back and and take a a quick look at it, we would find that, that David predicted a day when the Lord, see all caps there? The Lord, that's Yahweh. David wrote this psalm. Okay, He foresaw a day when the Lord, Yahweh, would call his Lord, okay to a heavenly throne it's no doubt a mysterious psalm i mean imagine some of the jewish readers of the day trying to are trying to figure this out who's david talking about his lord um i mean it, it even puzzled the the religious leaders in jerusalem jesus quotes this psalm and kind of throws them a puzzling question if if he's david if the messiah is david's lord how can he also be david's son and they don't know i mean it just it's it silences their they're questioning. So, David, all I want to point out here is that, that David is looking forward to a day when his Lord, someone greater than him, is going to be summoned to a heavenly throne. Come sit at my right hand, is what Yahweh says to this Lord. And, and clearly the Lord is a human king. If we were to look at the rest of this psalm, it would be very obvious that he is a human king. He's described like a king from David's line. Same language. Yet he also goes beyond any Davidic king. If we were to keep reading in the psalm, we would see that he's described as an eternal priest. An eternal priest. And it, after the order of Melchizedek, or like Melchizedek, so that weird shadowy guy in Genesis, uh, he, David links his lord here, his descendant, who is greater than him, with this eternal priesthood of Melchizedek. We're not going to get into that. Um, This psalm predicted a day when one of David's descendants would sit eternally enthroned at God's right hand. And what he would do when he's sitting here is he would crush his enemies and he would glorify his people. That's the, the idea implicit in this psalm. And what Paul is saying here. Is that the king is Jesus, and that it's happened, this enthronement that David looked at, David foresaw, has happened in the ascension. And if this is really interesting to you, you can write down Daniel seven, thirteen and fourteen. There's another instance of, of this happening, and obviously in Acts one you see the ascension, and Acts two Peter interprets these things almost the exact same way, Acts two thirty two through thirty six. So he's installed as king, all right? That's, that's clear. Uh, God's right hand. But what about the implications of this? If we're unclear exactly what this enthronement means, Paul spells it out for us. Christ is the supreme authority. He's the supreme authority. Now, what we're about to look at may be, I did, I did, this just kind of like tucked away, I didn't even realize the significance of what Paul was saying here until this week. This may be one of the clearest ascriptions of the complete sovereignty of Jesus Christ that we see in anywhere in Scripture. Potentially. Jesus Christ is the supreme authority. Look what he says here in verse 21. When he was installed as king, he was installed far above far above, exceeding all rule and authority and power and dominion. So, what does Paul mean when he says all power, all rule, authority, power and dominion? Well, There's a lot of talk about what these things mean, but I think if we just stick with the letter itself, what Paul is saying, because this, this terminology comes up again and again in the letter He's referring to evil spiritual beings. Evil spiritual beings. Demons, fallen angels, Satan himself. You might think, well, that's kind of a weird thing to say right here, talking about God's power. Well, no, it's really not. In fact, if we were to survey Scripture and Paul's theology, we would see that he understands these powers to be governing everything else. Like, for example... Uh, Look in your Bible. Turn over to Luke 4. In one of the incredible showdowns between the Son of God, Jesus, this, this king, and Satan the archenemy of of God, uh, there's a very, very interesting statement made by the devil in verse 5 that gets no correction from Jesus. Chapter 4, verse 5, The devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. How many kingdoms? All of them in a moment of time. And he said to him, devil talking here to you I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will whoa that's the devil talking if you then will worship me it will all be yours And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. This was an incredibly powerful temptation for the Lord Jesus. What was happening here is Satan was offering him all the kingdoms of the world apart from the cross. The shortcut. Now, in the end, it would have totally subverted God's purposes, which is impossible, because God reigns over Satan. Satan's always been on a leash. Underneath the sovereignty of God. But in this moment, there is a real sense where, because of the fall, authority has been delegated to Satan and his, and his hosts. We're going to see in the book of Ephesians, well, oh, we'll get there in a minute. But all I, want to, all I want to point out right now is that for Paul, if you flip back to Ephesians, for Paul to say that Jesus has been exalted over all of the evil beings in the spiritual realm, that's, that's for him to say he controls everything. Everything. And in fact, he amps it up like everything even that opposes him. So it, it's one of the most incredible ways he can articulate the, the power of God in Christ. These beings are our worst enemies, worst enemies. They are our greatest threat. They enslave every human being to follow their ways. Look down in chapter 2. And you were dead, verse 1, in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. It's the same language that's just used. So we're dead, so that's problem number one. And in, in our spiritual deadness, we're completely bound by the spirit that's at work within us, among us, enslaving us to do his will. And God's power in Christ, then, has broken our enslavement to these these spiritual beings, to Satan himself. And even though their, their power is broken, this letter in Ephesians will go on to say that, that they still try to lead us astray from Christ by appealing to our old man, the flesh, the what, what is resident still within us of our old ways and our old thinking. Satan can actually gain opportunity, Paul says, in our lives through unresolved anger. Flip over in chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 26. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. In other words, resolve it and give no opportunity to the devil. So the devil still has opportunity in our lives through sin, through unresolved sin, uh, sin that's unconfessed and unrepented of. And if you flip over to chapter 6, these evil hordes, are who Paul commands us to wrestle with. Look in chapter 6, verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. How like crazy is that? Think about people being persecuted in the Middle East right now. Yeah, you're not wrestling with flesh and blood. What are you talking about? They shot my family. No, what you are wrestling with is something greater than that, more powerful than that, with giving animation to that, you are wrestling against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. One commentator said it was like, Paul paraded the army of Satan right in front of us. Paul doesn't want us to underestimate our enemy. Satan is cunning, he's powerful, and his army is great. Now, if this unsettles you, look back at chapter 6, verse 10. Just a, it's two verses earlier. As we face our enemy, Paul tells us to be strengthened in the Lord Jesus. And by the strength of his might. So how does he, how does he strengthen us? I think we can answer that question a number of ways, but I think one totally connected right here is is by seeing and believing the vision of Christ in our text. By seeing and believing the vision of Christ in our text, God has installed him as the ultimate king. His foot is on the neck of every demonic power although they are free in this sense now, in this current time where they're, they're doing what they want, they are ultimately under His sovereign control. Now, today. So, how should that impact us? We should be strengthened. We should take strength. Be strengthened. Because we see that nothing can happen to us apart from the good and sovereign will of our King. He's enthroned far above all of these beings. and Not only that, but Jesus, if we flip back to our text, is also far above something else. He's far above all these spiritual beings, but he's also far above every name that is named. Far above every name that is named. Now, what does that mean? Well, I think probably the easiest way to understand this is, is when our translations typically call it uh, calling on the name of Jesus. Naming the name of Jesus. What is that a reference to? It's a reference to faith and worship, right? We're trusting in Jesus, we're worshiping Him, we're calling on His name for help. And so, I think it's a reference to every false God or idol. So, Jesus has been installed far above every so called God every object of possible worship. And this is really important for the Ephesians and for us today. Many of the Ephesians were saved out of magic cults, especially the cult of Artemis. They had a temple in the city. If, you, if you're familiar with Acts, you know that the first thing they did after their conversion was they burned their magic books. Center of, of, of religion, false religion, and, and power. What Paul is saying here is that Jesus is superior to any idol we may be tempted to worship. And you're saying, Well, I'm not gonna go to the palm reader, you know, down the street. Oh, good. I'm glad you're not. But are you tempted to put your trust in something else than Christ? That's an idol. Yourself. That's probably our greatest idol. Our education. If I can just get this education, then I'll get what I really want, or I can get what I really need, or or it it can provide for me, or I can get a, a fat bank account, and then I'll be safe. A job, same reasons. Marriage, satisfaction, intimacy, companionship, all good gifts from God. But the questions are, what do you seek refuge in? What do you rest in for ultimate security? What do you give your time to, your attention to, your money to? What do you obsess over? These things reveal the potential idols in our lives. The things which vie for our worship. And here's the reality. They don't really come through in the end. So Paul's saying here. Christ is superior to every idol that we're tempted to call on for help. He alone has been enthroned by God and can give us what we need. He can actually help us because only He's been enthroned at God's right hand. He's the only true God worthy of our worship and trust. And that's what Paul's driving at here. So he's far above every name that is named. And for how long? Paul says it. Not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So, in other words, his reign starts now and will last eternally. And it's that last clause it will it will last in eternity but also in the one to come that's, that paul's really emphasizing here jesus is not up for re-election it's not going to happen his terms never going to expire you can't impeach him you can't overthrow him he is reigning in this age and in the one to come and guys this is an incredible display of god's power isn't it incredible display Not only did did God raise Jesus, but he also installed him as the eternal and sovereign king. And as as breathtaking as that is for us, he doesn't stop there. He gives us one more display of his power. His power is a subjecting power. His power is a subjecting power. Subjugating power. I have two different things. (laughs) I heard some snickers he probably caught it. A subjugating power. It says in verse 22, um, And he put all things under his feet. And he put all things under his feet. So not only does he have the position of authority, but God has also brought everything under him. He's not only superior to every spiritual being and false god, but Christ is the one true ruler of the world. God in his mighty power has subjugated everything in creation to his son. Now you might be thinking, well, how is that different than what we just said or what we just looked at? It's really not that different. It's kind of another dimension, another angle of looking at it because of the background of what the Old Testament background that Paul's using here. He's using the language of Psalm 8. Using the language of Psalm 8. And you can see it here. This psalm, just before we look at it, is one of David's, King David's meditations on the role of humanity. So why we exist. Why God made us. And the role of humanity in particular is represented by Adam, the first human being. He says... In this verse, that God has crowned him with glory and honor. You see that? And it's giving him dominion. Or another way to say that is giving him a rule over the creation. So that's what it means to put all things under his feet in Psalm 8. It means to, to give a dominion. Adam has taken dominion or is given dominion over the earth. And this psalm echoes all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. So that's what David's probably meditating on, is this, this first chapter of Genesis. Adam and Eve were created to rule the world on God's behalf. And as God's image bearers, they were, they were to multiply and spread. And as they did that, because they, they were not fallen, they would have spread God's glory uh, throughout the world. They would, have, they would have been agents of his blessing throughout creation. This was the purpose of mankind. But we all know how the story goes. We royally failed. Instead of participating in this glorious purpose, we traded it for self seeking glory at the fall. Instead of life, we received death and been reaping the, the negative benefits ever since. Instead of freedom, we've got slavery. Instead of blessing, we found cursing. But God was committed to reversing this curse and restoring his blessing. Upon the world. And his plan, get this, would involve an obedient son. It would involve an obedient son. After Adam, who was the son of God, and failed, this promise of sonship passed through Noah, to Abraham, to Israel. But none of them were perfectly obedient. There were areas of obedience in their lives, and God continued to fulfill his his plan and purpose through them, But none of them were perfectly obedient. Eventually, this promise narrowed down to Israel's kings. David, the one who wrote this psalm, knew this. So, reflecting on Adam's destiny, or intended destiny, he was, in a sense, reflecting on his own as the king of of Israel. He knew that this Adam-like dominion would ultimately be fulfilled through one of Israel's kings can write down psalm 72 8 psalm 72 8 and you can read that whole psalm it's it's just it's a very it's just a beautiful crescendo from what adam was supposed to do to how that's being fulfilled in in the davidic king god david knew that god would give him worldwide dominion psalm 2 other places and that he would mediate God's blessing, this king would mediate God's blessing back to the world, reversing the curse, doing what Adam failed to do. So Paul is saying here that by using this language of Psalm 8, that Jesus is the final Adam. He's the final Adam to whom worldwide dominion is promised. Say it a little differently. He is the leader, the ruler of the new creation. That's coming. Through this Adam, God's blessings are being mediated to the world, and all creation, Paul says, is under his feet. All the new creation. And this current one. But it's got its, its view as to the new creation. And this is this is stunning. So it's a he's saying this a similar kind of thing that he just said. Do you see that? But he's coming at it from another angle, uh, an older angle, if you will, of God's original purpose for mankind. Paul has given us several stunning displays of God's power. We're now convinced that God's power is surpassingly great. But what Paul says next is absolutely amazing for us Christians. In his final statement of this passage, Paul reveals that his exalted king has been given to the church given to the church for her benefit. This king exists to serve us. We are the beneficiaries of this power. And this is the second aspect of God's power that we see in this passage. We'll call it the beneficiaries of God's power. This is stunning. Look in the second half of verse 22. It says, He put all things under His feet, and, here's, our, here's where we're picking it up, the beneficiaries. He gave him, that's Christ, he gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Here is our ultimate confidence, our ultimate confidence that all of God's mighty power is channeled to us for our good. God took the exalted king and he gave him over to us for our benefit. In other words, God has inextricably bound Jesus to you. Even though we were once his enemies, and we're going to unpack that next week, his foot is not on our necks our tender and benevolent King and Savior. And he exercises his mighty power for our protection, for our growth, and for our salvation. And to highlight how we benefit from God's power in Christ, Paul describes us in several different ways, using a couple of terms and metaphors. We'll cover these quickly. The, we got the whole letter to unpack these, so we're, we're good. Um, he describes us as the church, familiar term. God gave him, Paul says, God gave Christ to the church. This is the first time Paul's used this word in Ephesians, and it, it's God's end-time assembly made up of believing Jews and Gentiles. Later in the letter, he's going to describe the church as one new humanity. Uh, The ekklesia is the, the Greek word here. This group of people receive the unfathomable kindness and benevolent power of the king. And if you've entrusted yourself to Jesus, no matter how weak your faith is, if you've entrusted yourself to him, he's yours. You've been bound to him. Christ has been bound to you. And in addition to the church, this description, Paul immediately provides another description. This time in a metaphor. We are his body. Verse 23. The church, which is his body. Again, familiar language, but in the familiarity with it, don't miss the the significance of what he's saying. Paul's saying here that we are so fundamentally um, connected to Jesus, we're described as part of him. Part of him. We're inextricably bound to him, in other words. So much so that we're incorporated into his very person. Remember what Paul said, or what Christ said to Paul? <laughs> Paul has this probably ringing in his ears. are you persecuting me? That's Jesus talking to Paul, who was killing Christians. Are you persecuting me? Same idea here. We are inextricably bound to our King. And we will share in this new creation and in the over every evil foe. Why? Because we're part of this final Adam. The greatest David. In other words, the power that God's provided for his son, he will provide for his son's body. He nourishes and cherishes his body. And that leads us to the last description, what Paul says here in this text. He calls the church his fullness. The end of verse 23 the fullness, again, modifying the body. So it's sort of church, which is described as the body, which is described as his fullness. So the fullness of him who fills all in all. This final description is the most interesting and admittedly the hardest to interpret. What in the world does Paul mean by calling us his fullness? Uh, that sent a lot of commentators and pastors scrambling, trying to figure that out. Well, later in this letter, if I could just try to summarize it, later in this letter, Paul says that Jesus ascended into heaven. Why? So that he might fill all things. Here's the same terminology. We're called the fullness. So that he might fill all things. The question then becomes, how does Paul envision Jesus filling everything? Is he talking about? He fills all things. Is just Jesus omnipresent? Or what's he saying here? Well, I think we have our answer in our text. The church, his people, the very body of Christ, is the fullness. In other words, as Jesus recreates a people for his name, as we are renewed into the image of the final Adam, God's glorious image, by the way, then every corner of the creation is filled with the glory of God in Christ. It's filled up. It's full. And that's why Paul describes Jesus as the one who fills all in all. Jesus fills the new creation, everything, all in all, through those redeemed and transformed into his image. Through his body, through the church, through you. And it's happening now. The dead enemies of God are being recreated as we speak. Under the old creation, for the new creation. We're going to look at this more in depth next week. Uh, That's where Paul goes next in chapter 2. But the the fullness is increasing in every nation under heaven. And if you've entrusted yourself to Jesus, it's happened to you. You've experienced the first taste of this stunning power. You've been saved out of the evil system and commissioned to rescue others from this evil system for the glory of Christ. And we want to bring as many people into the new creation as we can for the sake of Jesus. And if you've not truly entrusted yourself to this king, don't wait. You have the opportunity now to become part of his body, part of his church, part of his fullness. So yield to him today and abandon yourself to this merciful king, mighty king. So tying it all up here, Paul prayed that you and I, the church, the Ephesians really, and then you and I, He prayed that we would get a spiritual glimpse of the kind of power that God has. really does have this kind of power. And he prays that that it will continue, or he prays for us to to see it. Because when we do, our our lives will be transformed. He knows that. And we could could look at the many ways. The, The rest of this letter is going to detail out what that transformation looks like for us. But just as a teaser... We already looked at this passage, chapter 6, verse 10. I know we're out of time. so all I'm going to say about this. Verse 10, he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. This is when he's talking about facing our spiritual enemies, (laughs) the hordes, right? Be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. We will find strength. We will find steadiness. We will find courage for the present battle today as we see and believe what Paul says here about our Lord in this first chapter of Ephesians. More on that later. Uh, we got a long, long, It's going to be a long time till we get to chapter 6, so I wanted to at least make that connection for you. There's strength for the battle, there's steadiness for the battle, and courage for the battle. In, in, our, in our fight for sanctification, for evangelism, for growth, For church planting, in the face of the most awful and demonic opposition that we could possibly face, there's courage and strength there because Christ has his foot on their necks. All right? So that's exciting. Let's pray.